Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Welcome back, everyone. This is Ben. I'm recording alone again this week. I'm really looking forward to the time that Christopher can come back and record with me. But uh, for now, he's uh, still incapacitated as far as the podcast goes. I'm hoping that next week I can be joined by Jeff Goddard. I had the chance to uh, meet up with him this past week, and and looking forward to being able to record uh, one of these episodes with him. This week we are going into First Kings, uh, chapters twelve through twenty-two. This is the second half or so of First Kings. I had thought to not record this at all. I, I actually thought I might skip this week because I was traveling out west. But on my drive back, I was thinking about it and listening to some things, and I realized there was probably too much to skip here. So I'm going to try to touch on some important things here to keep the narrative consistent and uh, help us as we move forward. And hopefully uh, we can cover some of those gaps that uh, we might have otherwise missed. I think this will be a much shorter episode, but I'm going to jump right into it. I would say this is actually one of the most important parts of the Old Testament. What's happening here is that uh, Solomon has died and the kingdom is going to pass to his son, Rehoboam. Solomon, towards the end of his life, kind of loses the plot, as Christopher would say. We can see this in his coercing of the labor to build the temple and his palace. This is actually the express reason that the Israelites cried out in Egypt and the Lord delivered them, right? And this is also what the people were warned about by Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 8. In fact, I'm not sure we touched on this, but the phrase is there in that chapter that the people would cry out after they had had their kings and the kings were oppressing them. And so we kind of are coming to this moment here when Solomon really has laid grievous taxes on the people. He's coerced their labor into these public works projects. They are really feeling uh, pretty oppressed. And here comes Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and he kind of doubles down on the heavy hand of his father This causes a rebellion of 10 of the tribes. You know, we talked about the prophet Ahijah and and the tearing of the garment into the 12 parts last time. And it's not 100% clear what the two tribes left over are. It's definitely Judah, but, you know, it's possibly Benjamin or it could be Simeon that's sort of tied up with Judah. In any case, as we see in the narrative of the story, the tribes, the people in the tribes don't really stay within their lands. They start mixing up um, a bunch, especially after the split of the kingdom. There are people that it says in the text come from all tribes to Jerusalem. This is because that's where the temple is. So at this point, these 10 tribes follow Jeroboam 
instead of Rehoboam. Jeroboam is of Ephraim. This is the political divide that was foreshadowed back in Genesis with the contest between Judah and Joseph. Jeroboam is afraid that the people will not stay loyal to him because the temple is at Jerusalem, and that is under the control of Rehoboam or of Judah. And so he builds what the text says are are two golden calves for them to worship. And we get this phrase, these are your gods, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Well, this is basically word for word what Aaron said back in Exodus, even though there was only one calf. And this has led um, some to think that, uh, that the text was possibly changed from a singular calf, which was a representation of Elohim or Jehovah. Remember that at this point, Elohim and Jehovah are pretty ambiguous. They, they've been confounded. They're not separate representations of, of gods in the pantheon like they are in the Canaanite concept at, at this point. Among the Israelites, these are kind of just different ways of referring to their god. In any case, this golden calf or the bullock is a reference to their god and alludes back to Aaron who built this golden calf in Exodus. So there's a possibility that the text was actually changed here from being a singular calf to two in a way that they could accuse Jeroboam of polytheism, uh, which is a lot of what's going on here, right? I mean, these records are juxtaposing Israel and Judah, and for the most part, taking the side of Judah, because they are the ones that survive the exile while the kingdom of Israel does not. And so they're the ones that come back, legitimize their way of viewing things, their religion, their insistence on Jehovah's God, uh, their temple, and so forth. There are a lot of parts in this text, uh, in this reading, that make references to chronicles of the kings. You know, you're going to get Uh, talking about a king, and then at a certain point, he'll say, oh, well, you can read more about him in the Chronicles of the King. And I think maybe the first inclination might be reversed to think, oh, that's first and second Chronicles that comes next. Um, What it is, is that these are are not first and second Chronicles, but they were probably the source material that was used for first and second Chronicles. First and second Chronicles are actually a, a later text post-exile, and they're more favorable in their treatment of the narrative of the Judaic kings. And this was so that they could give the people a national story or a myth to rebuild on after they return from the exile. One example that we see of this is that in Chronicles, when it comes uh, to the point in the narrative where it would mention Bathsheba, that the people went out to battle and, and were victorious and so forth, it completely leaves Bathsheba out of the whole story. In fact, if it, if it weren't for what we have in the other books, we wouldn't even know about Bathsheba. It doesn't mention her at all in First and Second Chronicles. David is impeccable. He's the king. He's the guy. He's the one that everybody should be like. He's the, the archetype, the Messiah. So that's kind of the idea here is that First and, first and Second Chronicles are positing this template that the people should really be looking to to follow if they want to rebuild their their kingdom and their former days of glory. In the reading, the narrative switches back and forth between the kingdoms of Judah and Israel, 
talking first about some kings in Judah and then about kings in Israel and so forth. And the general idea here is that the kings of Israel are basically all wicked and they lead the people into idolatry. The kings of Judah, uh, some are good in the sense that they focus all worship upon the Lord, but some are bad and I'd say all are flawed. Okay, so like even the best kings, Jehoshaphat and, and Asa, these kings, they still in the text have their flaws, like they don't completely get everything the right way. But it does talk about how their heart is in the right place. Um, and so it's a, it's a very interesting treatment of that record. And, and I think a very real way to look at some of these characters that we don't often get in scripture. To this point, Assyrian sources actually talk about Omri, who is a, a king of Israel, as one of the most important kings Assyria, Assyrian sources from this time think Omri is really, you know, the, the best king that Israel had to offer. And this really contrasts what we get in the text about Omri, Omri because it says that he did more evil than all who were before him. So again, this just highlights the point that this record is concerned with the theological nature of the kings and really little else. Okay, it's concerned with who they worshipped and why they did so, and, and that's the record that we're looking at here. Remember, this is sort of trying to give the people an understanding of why it is that they went into exile in the first place, why it is that Babylon was able to overtake them. And the narrative is they didn't worship the Lord, so the Lord, they abandoned the Lord, and so the Lord couldn't protect them or wouldn't protect them, depending on how you kind of view that. Next, we come across the prophet Elijah. Okay, Elijah is a very important prophet in the Old Testament, especially for Latter-day Saints. Elijah's name is significant here, and it's going to come up at a very crucial point in the narrative. Elijah's name, El, which means is, is the shortened version of Elohim, okay, or the singular version of Elohim, I could say. Eli and the I or the E indicates a, a possessive. So my God, and then Je, or depending on how you pronounce the J, it could be a Ya, like Yahweh, right? Elijah or Eliyah, my God, and then the is is implied, my God is Jehovah, or my God is Yahweh, or my God is the Lord. That's what Elijah's name means. Okay, this is significant because Elijah is sort of a restoration prophet. The people of Israel have gone astray, and Elijah is called to bring them back. They've killed all the prophets of God. I should say these are probably priests of Yahweh, of that specific God. Whereas, you know, there's, they've got Baal, and they've got Asherah, and uh, there's, there's a pantheon of gods in the Canaanite religion, and they've killed all of the prophets, the text says, but this could probably be better interpreted as priests of Yahweh. There's the king's servant. So at the king at this point is Ahab, and Ahab has married a woman named Jezebel. She is very keen on leading the people to worship Baal. The king's servant is Obadiah, and Obadiah secretly saves about a hundred of these prophets of God by hiding him in a cave. And so Obadiah sort of is working behind the scenes against Jezebel in trying to save some of these people. As the narrative 
starts off with Elijah, he is first sent to a widow. And this is the story of the widow of Zarephath. This story really illustrates how God will work through those who are not even of the covenant. Okay, she was not part of the house of Israel. This story is alluded to by Jesus to actually show this point. And in the story, Elijah not only gives her, or does these miracles, you're going to remember this story. It's, it's a very uh, popular one. He calls to the woman, asks her to give him to drink. She goes to get him a drink, and then he asks her for food. And she says, I don't have any food. Um, or I just have a tiny little bit that's left because uh, they're in a famine at this point, and I'm going to make it for my son and I, and then we're going to die of starvation because there's no food left. Elijah promises her that if she makes it for him and lets him eat, then she will have enough food to survive for the rest of her days, and she believes him and, and proceeds. One of the points I really like about this story is at the beginning where it talks about how the Lord had already told her that Elijah was coming. And so she knew that this was going to happen. She had some sort of spiritual experience, right? Is in tune in some way to this. And so is willing to help and serve others even when she's about to die. She's willing to go go get him some water to begin with. It shows an extreme amount of faith. And I think that's why Jesus tells this story or one of the reasons, obviously, that he tells this story. Next, Elijah brings this woman's son back to life. Okay, she's she's a widow, her husband has died, and now she loses her son. This is a moment that even for Elijah is hard to process. He's distraught over the situation. I would say this shows us how life can make even the most faithful people question it's justice, the reason for being. After Elijah takes the boy into the upper room, the text says that Elijah does this. He cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I am staying by killing her son? So this is kind of this moment of exasperation, I see, of Elijah saying, you know, I this doesn't make any sense, God. Uh, this shouldn't be. This is too much to bear. Then he performs this thing where he lays out on, on top of him, and this is kind of symbolic of him bringing the life back into the boy. We're going to see something similar to this later with Elisha, who is the successor to Elijah. Next in the story, we have coming up this contest between the Lord and Baal. So this is also a very popular story uh, with Elijah. It's reminiscent of Moses in Egypt when there was sort of this contest between God and the gods of Egypt or Pharaoh. So in fact, in the story, Elijah does many things that are similar to Moses. He strikes the water and it opens and he crosses on dry ground. He goes into the wilderness and sees God. Um, you know, he's sitting under a tree, which is sort of how Moses sees the burning bush, right? These are very close, closely related stories. Very likely that this was done in a way to show that Elijah was a true prophet, right? He's a, a restoration prophet in a sense here. 
So in the story of the contest between the Lord and Baal, we see a lot of things that are representations of the Canaanite pantheon of gods, just like in Egypt. I think we mentioned in Exodus that the 10 different plagues that happen can all be tied back to some Egyptian god. Here in this story, we see something similar where a lot of the things that Elijah is doing with the bullock and the wood and the barrels of water and the stones, these are all representative of this pantheon of of Canaanite gods. And ultimately, the most powerful thing that a god can do is lightning or bring fire down from heaven. So that's what the Lord does to show his power and he completely consumes all of these other symbols of these other gods. Again, it's the demonstration that the Lord is greater than all of them, just like with Moses and Pharaoh. Here we come to a difficult point in the narrative. There's a lot of this going on in the Old Testament. This is a question about Elijah killing the prophets of Baal. Okay, so how is it that a prophet of God would go and just kill all of these prophets of Baal just because they believe differently than him. All right, so these questions of violence are not going to go away. We've addressed them. We're going to continue to address them. There are a few things we have done in addressing them that I'll touch on here. I'd say the first is that in looking at this, We first want to bring in the context of the narrative in order to understand the ancient mindset of the people. And remember that how they viewed their God does not impose upon us the same view. Okay, I'm going to say that again. How these people viewed their God does not impose upon us the same view. Okay? I think often we read scriptures And we think that everything that it says about how the people, what the people thought about God means that we should think the same thing about God. And that's not what the scriptures are saying. Just because they say people believed this or that about God is not imposing on us the same belief. There's a lot of things that we can learn from these narratives, these stories, the symbolic representations of how this happens that does not require us to adopt the same view and understanding of God that these people had. Okay. The second thing we see is that the events themselves don't have to have happened this way historically in order for us to get meaning from them. Okay. The point of these stories is not primarily to tell what happened, but it's to show that the Lord is the God of Israel And he's the only one that can save them and also us. The third point I'm going to make, there's there's other points on this line, but these are just three of the ones that I'm going to talk about right now. The third thing is that Jesus provides us the ultimate template by which we view God. This is what we've called the Christological approach. This has been taken by various others. Uh, We've mentioned Gregory Boyd in his book, Cross Vision. Another person that takes this approach to the Old Testament is Brian Zond. Brian Zond has something particularly relevant to say about this Elijah incident, and so I want to read that. He says, The sons of thunder, James and John, wanted to call down fire from heaven on a Samaritan village who refused to welcome Jesus. 
We can see this account in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 56. Okay, if you want to go look that up. In their petition, they were able to cite scripture because Elijah had done this. But Jesus rebuked them, saying, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. The question isn't, can we find it in the Bible? But can we find it in Jesus? If we weaponize the Bible to hurt other people, we do not have the spirit of the Lord. Next in the narrative, after all this happens, Jezebel is seeking to kill Elijah because he has sort of demonstrated the superiority of God uh, over Baal, and that destroys Jezebel's power over the people. And so she is seeking to kill him. He flees into the wilderness, right? This is reminiscent of Moses again. And as he's out in the wilderness, he is feeling lonely. He has done everything the Lord has commanded him to do. The people really haven't listened, right? All of this spectacular display of fireworks and, and show and, uh, you know, he, he, he's got all this banter that he does with the priests and stuff. It's, it's an, another interesting part. All of this and the people really just still don't, don't care. They're not going to follow God. And so he's kind of like, hey, you know, I, I guess I'm done. Uh, he tells the Lord he's ready to die. The way that he's, he's lonely and he's concerned for his life, but he's, he's also ready to die kind of reminds me of Lehi. Lehi mentions that they put Jeremiah in prison and then they are also seeking his life. And so he, Lehi is going to flee into the wilderness, right? So as I was saying, Elijah just witnessed this spectacular display of God's power, but it didn't really convert anybody. So as he goes out in the wilderness and he's, he's in a cave, the Lord comes to him and actually he's, he's sitting under the tree, right? And an angel comes to him. And this is interesting. This is we can probably see some multiple sources in this narrative here about what's going on. It's like, well, is it in a tree? Is he in a cave? Is it an angel? Is it God? It's probably two different sources here. And they've put them together into this, this one thing that makes it look like it's just a, a single story. But to me, it looks like two. In any case, he has an encounter with the divine God or an angel. We talked before about how that's sometimes ambiguous in the text. And here he is reminded of the true power of God, right? This is the point where is the big wind and there's like the earthquake and the fire and the whirlwind and God's not in those things. He saw a display of God's power, but that's not who God is. What is it? After all of these things, the King James Version calls it a still small voice. And we use this all over, right, in our religion, this phrase, still small voice, to describe the Holy Ghost and what that experience, that contemplative, still, quiet, reflective, humble, peaceful experience is with God, still small voice. The NRSV has a different translation of this, and I think it's really interesting. It calls it the sound of sheer silence. The sound of sheer silence. And then it says, when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle. Now just think about that for a second. What does sheer silence sound like? I think the KJV is, is a good at pointing at this as well, the still small voice. 
What is there when we are still and silent, contemplative and open and ready for God to give us revelation? So I really like that NRSV, the sound of sheer silence. And Elijah hears it. What does he hear? He hears what you hear when you are in true silence and peace. And that is ineffable, right? It's indescribable. When you truly have that manifestation of the Spirit, it's not something that's easy to describe. So again, when Elijah hears this, it says he wrapped his face in his mantle. All right, so this is a placing of a veil over his eyes, in a sense. Again, getting back at this concept that it's not something that can be described aesthetically, necessarily. It could mean that he was afraid to see God. Remember that a common ancient view was that seeing God would kill you. It could also be that he he did see God, and like Moses, his face was shined, right? It says the face of Moses shone after he was up in the mountain. And so he was kind of covering his face to keep it from glowing too much on <laughs> all the people around him. I'm not sure exactly. But again, this is all stuff that is very uh, illusory to Moses for many reasons. One is because that's how things go, right? This is how the story goes with a prophet. A lot of these similar things are going to happen. The other is that when you're talking about authority of a prophet and and his legitimacy, you definitely want to refer back to Moses, right? Moses is the undisputed uh, prophetic authority. As we move into Second Kings, we're going to move deeper and deeper into the wickedness of the people and the kings, um, and this is when the scattering is going to start taking place. Uh, we're, we're approaching the, the crisis, the point where the people are taken into exile, and we're going to get some moments of, of restoration, like with Josiah, and, and then we have these moments with Hezekiah and, and so forth. So these are very important kings, but, but again, it's this pretty steady decline um, especially with the kingdom of Israel, but then also with Judah, pretty steady decline um, away from the days of glory of, of David and Solomon into what we might call apostasy, into wickedness, into um, idolatry, uh, and so forth. And so, again, I'm, I'm looking forward to having a discussion about this with, uh, with Jeff next week. And um, until then, I'll sign off. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.